We're going to talk about in this component of Lecture 7, Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Section 7 is a fascinating provision of the Charter. It is less obvious on its face what it means than I think almost any other part of the Charter, and yet it is getting at fundamental ideas of justice and rights that lie at the core of the Canadian constitutional rights protection framework. The provision reads, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So it's a nice phrase, but how do you bring that to bear upon actual legal questions is a difficult problem that the courts have grappled with since the passage of the Charter. There are a few things that should jump out about the language of Section 7. The first is, what is life? What is liberty? What is security of the person? These are key questions for Section 7 because these are the rights that are being guaranteed. And then there is a qualification on these rights a suggestion it is possible to deprive people of these things, but only in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. What are the principles of fundamental justice? How vague and amorphous of a term is that? How do we bring that into a framework that can be applied in a predictable way to disputes? It's a hugely important question. You see that Section 7 of the Charter is in a part of the Charter that's entitled Legal Rights. And most of the balance of these legal rights sections are concerned overwhelmingly with criminal law. It's the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, unreasonable arrest or detention, to be informed of a charge upon arrest, to be tried within a reasonable time. These types of issues that come up in the criminal context. Section 7 has important criminal law application. It is a very important part of the charter framework constraining criminal law, but it also is hugely important in the civil framework. It spills out of the criminal framework and decides important issues in a civil context as well. And as we'll see, the types of issues that we're talking about when we get into Section 7, are indeed fundamental and complex questions. Medical assistance in dying, these types of hugely complex issues are dealt with within a Section 7 framework. So we'll get into the details. We'll get into the history a bit more. Before we do so, I do want to start with a quick point about the applicability of Section 7. Who is protected, what interests are protected by Section 7. And the language of the provision is everyone. Everyone is protected. And everyone has been interpreted in other charter contexts to include not only individual people, not only real people, but also corporations. So the word everyone could be interpreted in that way. However, the protection is everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And the courts have said that corporations do not have life and they don't have a liberty interest and they don't have security of the person. 
So they're saying that even though the word everyone might be broad enough to include corporations, the balance of Section 7 reveals that these rights are guaranteed to individual persons. So could a corporation say, well, this law may prevent my ability to continue going forward as a corporation, and that's akin to my life as a corporation, and therefore I have an infringement of Section 7? Courts have said no. Interestingly, though, this doesn't mean that a corporation couldn't invoke Section 7. And this is a, a nuanced point that is a bit tricky, but I think should ultimately be fairly clear. It's this, that when you are directly affected by an unconstitutional law, if you have standing to challenge the constitutionality of that law, either a public interest standing or a private interest standing, we've talked about that. If you can get the court to say, yes, you have standing to challenge a law, you are not bound to only challenge it in the way it applies to you. You can say, look, maybe this law, as it directly applies to me, would be constitutional, but this law has another fundamental problem, and I have a right not to be affected by an unconstitutional law. So if you're a corporation, if you're a corporation, and there's a law that is applying to your corporation and you don't like it, and that law has the effect of depriving somebody, a real person, of life, liberty, or security of the person, and you think it doesn't do so in accordance with fundamental justice. If you have standing, if you could show private interest or public interest standing, you could raise those arguments and say, look, I know, I'm a corporation. It doesn't deprive me of life, liberty, or security of the person because me as a corporation, I don't have a life, liberty, or security of the person interest. However, this law, when it applies to natural persons, to, to real humans, it does have that effect. It does deprive of life, liberty, or security of the person. It doesn't do so in accordance with fundamental justice, and it's therefore unconstitutional. And I, as a corporation, have as much of a right to not be affected by an unconstitutional law as anyone else. So in that way, you can see how the question of whether you are able to challenge the constitutionality of a law is not the same as the question as to whether the constitutional guarantee applies directly to you. Corporations can invoke constitutional rights that they don't in themselves possess in order to preclude the application of unconstitutional laws to their affairs. Famous example, come to this example a few times, Sunday closing laws when they were found to violate freedom of religion because they were imposing upon people who didn't have a religious, a Christian religious worldview, an obligation to not do business on a Sunday for a fundamentally uh, Christian religious worldview reason. Those laws were challenged by a corporation. The corporation didn't have freedom of religion. Corporations don't have religion. Yet the corporation was directly affected by the law and said, this law is directly affecting me. It's unconstitutional. I'm going to challenge it. The corporation had standing and the corporation was able to invoke freedom of religion even though it, as a corporation, didn't possess freedom of religion. So again, that's why I want to 
be very clear that while Section 7 does not apply directly to corporations because corporations can't have their life, liberty, or security of the person deprived because they don't have those things, that does not mean that a corporation could not invoke Section 7 if it otherwise has standing to challenge the constitutionality of a law or state action. It's a minor point, it's a bit nuanced, but it's an important one to understand. So who has the benefit of Section 7? Natural persons. That includes everybody within the Canadian state's coercive power. You don't have to be a citizen. You don't have to be a permanent resident. You don't have to have a visa. You could be undocumented. You still have Section 7 rights. So getting into the text a bit more, we have to think about what are we talking about when we say life? What are we talking about when we say liberty? What are we talking about when we say security of the person? And what are we talking about when we say the principles of fundamental justice? So on the first, what is the right to life? What would deprive someone of their right to life? Well, death, right? The death penalty would engage the right to life. It has been abolished in Canada. It's been abolished before the charter was passed. If it had not been, it would certainly be a basis upon which to say that the death penalty would have to be done in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And I'm not sure how the court would have landed, but I think it might have said that you cannot do the death penalty in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. But think right to life, what does it include? Well, it includes the right not to be killed by the state. Another right to life, an interesting one, is found in the Carter case we talk more about later, where the court said, well, the effect of these assisted suicide prohibitions is to cause people to commit suicide earlier than they would otherwise have intended to. The idea being that suicide wasn't illegal. And so people might choose to, while they are still able to take their own life, take their own life rather than wait until their medical condition worsened such that they would no longer be able to take their own life and because of the prohibition on assisted suicide, no longer able to take their life at all. So the freedom to not be forced to commit suicide earlier than one would want is a life interest under Section 7. But generally, life is interpreted in a fairly straightforward way. It truly is about your rights in relation to death, to not be killed and to not be forced to kill yourself earlier than you might otherwise like. Liberty is the biggest path into Section 7. The liberty interest is the one that's most often litigated in relation to Section 7 rights. And any law that has the potential to result in incarceration, imprisonment, of any amount of time engages a liberty interest. So if you have in a Fisheries Act a provision that says, you know, if you repeatedly violate the prohibition on harmfully altering fish habitat, you can be subject to a fine not exceeding $10,000 or a term of imprisonment not exceeding two weeks. Well, that relatively minor imprisonment issue nevertheless triggers a right to liberty. And that means that the provisions of that act that can lead to a deprivation of liberty 
need to be in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, which we'll get to later in this lecture. The right to liberty also includes the ability to make decisions of fundamental personal importance. These are things that are so fundamental to a person that by their very nature, they implicate basic choices going to the core of what it means to enjoy individual dignity. These are, these are rare that you get to a decision of such fundamental importance to somebody, it will trigger a liberty interest. There are, as far as I know, only three examples that have been found so far. One is where to live. If the state were to tell somebody individually they can't live somewhere, that can implicate a liberty interest somewhere within Canada. What medical treatment to receive? If a state were to force someone to receive a medical treatment, that would engage a liberty interest. And what medical treatment one's children should receive has also been found to implicate a liberty interest. Liberty interests, importantly, do not include economic rights. Your right to carry on a business, to earn a particular livelihood, or to engage in a professional activity, these are not covered by the liberty interest. Similarly, lifestyle choices. If the state prevents you from smoking marijuana or eating fatty foods or gambling, they have not infringed your liberty in a Section 7 context. So liberty can be thought very broadly. You know, Liberty is freedom, and if I want to not wear a seatbelt and drive down, you know, smoking a cigarette and I want to have a, a big old juicy burger, you know, maybe that's unhealthy and maybe it's dumb, but it's something that I am free to do. You know, I think that strong American liberty ethos. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about really core fundamental freedom to not be in prison, to not be told where to live, to not be told what medical treatment to receive. Someday there's been suggestion that liberty interests could be expanded and they could one day include a positive right such as a guarantee of enough resources for survival like a guarantee of a minimum amount of food these ideas of guaranteed minimal income and things like that and finding a positive right to that within liberty has been theorized and suggested and so far has been unsuccessful and there doesn't seem to be a strong push in that direction, but it comes up every once in a while. So you could see liberty expanded in the future. But for now, for the purposes of this course, you want to think, look, what is liberty? We're talking about imprisoning people. We're talking about forcing them to live somewhere, telling them where to live, and telling them what medical treatments to receive. That's really what we're talking about. These fundamental personal importance decisions, as well as imprisonment. The final protected interest in Section 7 is security of the person. And again, this has not been interpreted as broadly as it might hypothetically have been. It has been found to protect people's ability to make fundamental choices about one's body. So we're talking about abortion is a security of the person interest. Carter, the uh, assisted suicide case, that was found to engage security of the person like fundamental choices about your body, and also serious state-imposed psychological stress can infringe your security of the person. Taking your child away is the example that I have. Again, security of the person could have been interpreted more broadly, but it's been interpreted in a restricted way. 
It's really going to be fundamental matters of a high, high level of importance that are going to get to that threshold of infringing potentially your security of the person, you know, forcing you to carry a child that you don't want to, uh, forcing you to um, live with a grievous medical condition when you wish to end your life. These are the kind of things that, that have that high level of seriousness that have been found to implicate this protected right. So if you're thinking a Section 7 framework, you have to think that the first thing you need to do is show a hook, show some reason that you have a protected interest at stake, that there is a deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person. And you want to think, I mean, I want to say nine times out of 10, but more like 999 times out of 1,000, you're looking for a potential for the law that you are concerned with to lead to imprisonment. And lots of laws, even relatively minor things, have as a potential imprisonment. You don't have to be actually facing imprisonment to challenge a law. There just has to be that possibility out there. So do people often go to jail for minor Fisheries Act offenses? No. But is it possible to go to jail for a violation of a Fisheries Act offense? Yes. And so therefore, you can point to that and say, this law exposes me to a risk, a risk of jail. Even if I'm not being charged with that, the law itself can't expose me to a risk of jail without comporting with the principles of fundamental justice. So if I'm charged with a fisheries offense and the Crown is seeking a $1,000 fine, but there's a possibility for jail in the legislation, the power exists, well then I have standing, I have private interest standing to challenge that law. I'm directly affected by that law as a whole. And whether or not the part of it that raises the constitutional concerns, that is the possibility of imprisonment, whether or not that is directly raised in my case, because I have standing to challenge the law, I can check the constitutionality of the whole law or of the whole provision that's affecting me. So you look for a possible deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person. If you can find that, then you make an argument as to why that deprivation is not in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And we'll get into what those principles of fundamental justice are as we go through the cases. So I want to step into the cases and talk first about the Motor Vehicle Act reference. This is again a very early Supreme Court of Canada case in the charter context and is an important Section 7 framework case. So you had the BC Motor Vehicle Act, which provided minimum periods of imprisonment for the offense of driving without a valid driver's license or a suspended license. And what was so important is that guilt is established. If I can show that you're driving without a license, I don't need to prove if I'm the state that you knew about the prohibition or knew that you didn't have a license. This is what's called an absolute liability offense. There's no defense for saying, oh, I, I didn't know. That would be a, a mens rea. This is criminal law. Don't worry too much about this, but you'll cover this in criminal law if you haven't already. There's sort of three levels of offenses. You've got the mens rea, where you have to show a guilty mind. You've got the strict liability, which is the state doesn't have to prove that you knew you are just doing something wrong, but they do have to prove that you did something, and then you can raise as a defense that you did your due diligence and it's not your fault that you were mistaken about whether you had a license you know maybe you 
You just never got the letter saying your license was revoked. Absolute liability means if I find you doing this, I don't care if there is every excuse in the world, you're still liable. So that's what the question is. What's the constitutional status of this absolute liability offense? And this offense engages Section 7. There's a possibility of imprisonment for driving without a license. So if somebody is charged with driving without a license, whether or not the state is actually asking that they be imprisoned, they can check the constitutionality of that section by saying, hold on, there's a possibility of imprisonment here. This provision had better comply with the principles of fundamental justice. So the court here for the first time is really getting into what are these principles of fundamental justice? And the court first thinks, are these, is this like natural justice? Is this effectively the same as procedural fairness? Is that what the principles of fundamental justice are? Are they purely procedural? In other words, are we going to look at the substance of what the state is trying to do, or are we just going to look at how it's trying to do it? The court says that would be an emaciated interpretation. That would be a, a poor, weak, and insufficiently robust interpretation. They look at the other legal rights. Remember I said that legal rights section in the charter isn't just section 7, it goes to section 14. And they say, no, these aren't just procedural rights. These are protections against, for example, cruel and unusual punishment. The charter contemplates review of the substance of the legislation. So it's not natural justice. It's not just procedural fairness. It's not just a right to fairness. Well, then what are the principles of fundamental justice? And the court decides they are found in the basic tenets of the legal system. Again, they look at sections 8 through 14 of the charter, the right to be free from arbitrary detention, from cruel and unusual punishment, and say, these are indicative of the types of things that are contemplated by the principles of fundamental justice. And is the court going to try to list all the principles of fundamental justice now in the first case that they have this? No, they say, as we address alleged violations of Section 7, these principles of fundamental justice will begin to take on a concrete meaning. So in this case, what's the principle of fundamental justice they're concerned with? And they say, well, it's the idea that the innocent should not be punished. And they say that is a principle of fundamental justice. And so if you were going to say, I don't care what your excuse is, I don't care if this is entirely not your fault, you can face punishment, that violates this principle. The court says this idea of absolute liability violates this principle. If you pair absolute liability with a possibility for imprisonment, then you have a violation of Section 7 of the Charter. So can the state still enact absolute liability? There's no defense. I don't care what you're telling me. You did the thing that's prohibited and therefore you face the consequences. Can they still do that? Well, the answer is yes but only if they don't pair that with imprisonment. If there's a Section 7 interest, a liberty interest engaged, then the state can't. The state can't say, I don't care what your excuse is. They can't pass absolute liability offenses that expose people to the possibility of imprisonment.
The next case we have is the case of Malmo Levine, and this is a really important case for the Supreme Court of Canada's approach to recognizing principles of fundamental justice. And here you had a guy who was a marijuana freedom activist, and he was charged with possession of the purposes of, for the purposes of tra- trafficking under the Narcotic Control Act. He wanted to challenge the laws about marijuana which have since been dramatically reformed, but he wanted to challenge the old regime, which was a criminalization of marijuana. And he said, my Section 7 rights are engaged here. So the court first had to decide, well, are Mr. Levine's, Mama Levine's rights engaged? And the court said, yeah, there's a, a possibility of imprisonment that's sufficient to trigger Section 7 scrutiny. There's another argument made that the decision to consume marijuana was part of his his lifestyle and was a decision of fundamental importance and was protected by Section 7 under that basis as well. This was another liberty interest that ought to be protected. And the court said no. I alluded to this earlier in this lecture, but the court was very clear. They said, the Constitution cannot be stretched to afford protection to whatever activity an individual chooses to define as central to his or her lifestyle. One individual chooses to smoke marijuana, another has an obsessive interest in golf, a third is addicted to gambling. The appellant Kane, that's a Mama Levine and Kane were both defendants in this case. The appellant Kane invokes a taste for fatty foods, a society that extended constitutional protection to any and all such lifestyles would be ungovernable. So we're not going to get into section seven just because you say that this is affecting something of fundamental importance to you that's not going to be a liberty interest however with that said we do have a possibility of imprisonment here so section seven is engaged well what's the test to figure out if this legislation violates section seven it engages section seven because of the possibility of imprisonment but does it cause a constitutional problem because it isn't in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And the Supreme Court of Canada says, if we want to decide if something's a principle of fundamental justice, we have to look for three characteristics. First off, it must be a legal principle. Second, there must be significant societal consensus that is fundamental to the way legal systems ought to operate. And it must yield a manageable standard against which to measure deprivations of life, liberty, or security of the person. So it's got to be a legal principle with significant societal consensus that is fundamental to the way the legal system ought to operate. And it must yield a manageable standard against which to measure the deprivation of these protected life, liberty, or security of the person interests. Mama Levine had argued that the criminal law cannot prohibit conduct that harms only the accused. And this is tying back to a, uh, another John Stuart Mill. We mentioned him in expression. Uh, he had a, a, a harm principle philosophy, which said that responsibility within a society is to do no harm to others. And the idea being, if you're only harming yourself, that's, that's your choice, that's your freedom, that's your matter. And the court said, no, this is not right. This is not a principle of fundamental justice. They said, first, the harm principle is not a a legal principle. It's not something that's been 
identified and applied in the, the legal jurisprudence. It's a, it's a philosophical idea. It's not a, strictly a legal principle, but even if we were to ignore that, there's not a societal consensus that this is fundamental to the way a justice system must operate. Indeed, there's a lot of criminal law, the court says, where a person other than the accused isn't harmed. They point to criminal law prohibition on cannibalism, you know, assuming someone's already dead. It's very morbid, but the idea being, well, that no one's hurt by the cannibalism apart, you know, if the person's already dead. Um, Morbid stuff, but bestiality also, they say, well, there's no person harmed by that. Very anthropocentric worldview, but leaving that aside. So they say there's lots of crimes where no person other than the accused is necessarily harmed. And yet we still allow those to be criminalized. And there certainly is no consensus that we're wrong to do so. So we haven't found that significant societal consensus for a harm principle. And they also say it's not a manageable standard. I mean, harm can take many forms, economic harm, physical harm, social harm. So the court says we're not going to recognize the harm principle as a principle of fundamental justice. Leaving that aside, they say, well, Let's look at other principles of fundamental justice that are established and see whether they could apply in this case. And they look at two principles, which we'll discuss further in the next uh, case, arbitrariness and gross disproportionality, an idea that a law should not be arbitrary in what it criminalizes or grossly disproportional in its effect as compared to the state's interest. We'll get into these quite a bit deeper in the next case. But to finish up on Mama Levine, the court said, these marijuana laws are neither arbitrary nor grossly disproportional. Mama Levine had argued that deprivation of liberty for having marijuana does little to advance a valid state interest, and therefore it's arbitrary to deprive someone's liberty for doing that. And the court said, no, there's a real apprehension of harm that the state has shown, and that's enough to say it's not arbitrary to criminalize marijuana. And they also pointed, Mambo Levine also pointed out that many people um, engage in marijuana use and very few are punished, so it's grossly disproportionate to potentially expose some people to imprisonment when most people have no consequence. And the court said, no, it, it would be inconsistent with the rule of law to point to non-compliance with the law as a basis to say it's unconstitutional. To say just because people aren't complying with the law doesn't mean we're going to say the law itself was necessarily unconstitutional. We'll get more into these concepts of gross disproportionality and arbitrariness, as I say, in a second, though. So the next case we have is the PHS Community Services Society. This is the Insight case. We spoke about this earlier when we talked about interjurisdictional immunity and its application to provincial jurisdiction. And you'll remember that this is the case about a section of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, Section 56, that gives the Federal Minister of Health discretion to issue an exemption from the Controlled Drug and Substances Act prohibitions where such exemptions are necessary for a medical or scientific purpose or is otherwise in the public interest. So Insight is the safe injection site it had gotten this exemption so that its staff could handle the opiates and other illegal drugs 
without running afoul of the Controlled Drug and Substances Act. Its exemption was set to expire in 2008, but a new government had come in and the new government said they did not support Insight and would not be renewing their exemption. The evidence at trial showed that Insight was saving lives and had improved the health of users and had not increased drug use and crime in the surrounding areas. So two nonprofits and two clients of Insight launched constitutional challenges or a constitutional challenge in the BC Supreme Court, arguing both the interjurisdictional immunity point we talked about earlier and a violation of Section 7 of the Charter. And the first hurdle, of course, they had to overcome was showing that Section 7 was triggered, that is, to show a deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person. And the court said, yes, Section 7 is engaged. First, we have these drug laws that are going to apply to the people who work at Insight, and they carry with them a potential for imprisonment. So if you can get to that potential of imprisonment as a result of the operation of the law, then you have a liberty interest sufficient to trigger the application of Section 7. But the court went further and said that this also engages the life and security of the person interests of the users of Insight. So while the staff could face imprisonment if they don't get this exemption, the users of Insight, if they're deprived potentially life-saving medical care, could lose their lives and they could lose their security of the person. And the court noted that where a law creates a risk to health by preventing access to health care, this can be a deprivation of the right to security of the person. So you have here all three interests at stake. You have the liberty of the Insight staff who are potentially facing jail if they don't have an exemption from the Controlled Drug and Substances Act. You have the lives of the users of Insight who are potentially going to be denied life-saving medical treatment. And you have the security of the person of the users of Insight who are being denied medical care. And indeed, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, I believe the evidence was and still is that nobody has died of an overdose at Insight, which is truly remarkable when you consider the fatalities associated with opiates on the downtown east side in the last 10 years, and especially since the fentanyl epidemic. So you have deprivations of life, liberty, and security of the person what are these caused by? Are they caused by the Controlled Drug and Substances Act's prohibition themselves, the prohibition on assisting someone in general with administering these drugs? Or are they caused by refusing to give an exemption? And the court says, look, the scheme itself is good. The scheme itself is fine because you're prohibiting possession and assistance in administering these drugs generally but you have this safety valve position that allows an exemption to be made that prevents the Controlled Drug and Substances Act from applying where doing so would be inconsistent with the principles of fundamental justice. And the principles of fundamental justice that were cited are arbitrariness, overbreath, or gross disproportionality. But what about the decision to deny an exemption? Was that consistent with the principles of fundamental justice? And the court says, no, it's arbitrary. It undermines the purpose of the Controlled Drug and Substances Act, which is protection of health and public safety. And the decision is grossly disproportionate. 
the effect of denying the service, the increase in the risk of death and disease, is grossly disproportionate to the benefit of preventing a uniform stance on the possession of illegal drugs. So what we see there talk about three principles of fundamental justice, and these are the most important ones to remember. Arbitrariness, overbreadth, grossly disproportionate. Okay, for arbitrariness, what you want to think is that the law bears no connection to the state's objective. The effects of the law bear no connection with the state's objective. Overbreadth doesn't need to go quite that far, but it interferes with some conduct that bears no connection to the law's objective. And gross disproportionality is when the effect of the law is so severe as compared to the state's objective, it's completely out of sync with that objective. You could think of extreme cases. You could think, imagine a law where there was a purpose of keeping the streets clean that imposed a sentence of life imprisonment if you spat on the sidewalk. It would be so disproportionate to the state's objective, the effect would be so disproportionate that it would be seen as inconsistent with the principles of fundamental justice to apply the law in that way. So you can kind of think of them, arbitrariness, no connection between the law and the state's objective. Overbreadth, perhaps some connection, but you're going too far and you're capturing things that bear no connection. Gross disproportionality, there is a connection between the law and the state's objective, but the effect on somebody is so inconsistent, is so far out of proportion with that objective that it violates these fundamental legal ideas to allow it to apply in that way. So in the Insight case, they say the decision to not give an exemption is both arbitrary and grossly disproportionate. It's arbitrary because the state's objective here, they say, is to protect health and public safety. But this decision, the evidence shows, will in fact undermine health and undermine public safety. Furthermore, on gross disproportionality, they say the effect of denying the service, increasing the risk of death and disease, is grossly disproportionate to the benefit of setting out a uniform stance on the possession of illegal drugs. That was the benefit that was relied upon. And in the Insight case, the court said, having found both overbreadth, oh, sorry, both um, gross disproportionality and arbitrariness, I don't need to go on to consider overbreadth. But we'll look at that more in a second in another case. So we're going to get into some more examples of the application of these principles. But the main things I want you to take away from Insight is an example of how you can find a violation of these rights of life, liberty, and security of the person. The idea that you have this possibility of imprisonment on the workers. And then you have the possibility that someone's life will be shortened or they'll be denied medical care, which gets you a life interest and a security of the person interest. And then you want to think these three principles of fundamental justice that were at play, arbitrariness, overbreadth, and gross disproportionality. I'll talk in greater depth about how section one and section seven interact. And in fact, there's a 
fairly strongly believed theory that a Section 7 right could never be saved under Section 1. And I'll get to that at the end because it's kind of a nice way to tie the whole topic together. But in this case, furthermore, Section 1 was, was not even argued. And the court simply said that if a Section 1 analysis is even required, no Section 1 justification can succeed. So we'll get to this later, but I don't want to think, I didn't want you to think that a Section 1 analysis was ignored entirely, but for reasons that we'll get into later, it's minimal in this case. And generally in Section 7 cases, that will be true. In that sense, Section 7 is very different from Section 2B expression cases where quite often the bulk of the analysis is in Section 1. If you can show a Section 7 violation, as I'll explain later, you're very, very unlikely to have a problem at Section 1. So the next case will give us another chance to look at these ideas of arbitrariness and overbreadth, and that is the case of Carter in Canada. Um, this is a was a challenge to the law on medical assistance in dying. And um, I actually worked on this case at the Department of Justice as a uh, as a articled student. Um, not a big role at all, but I did some some work on the division of powers. So this was a case that had a challenge to two sections of the criminal code that prohibited medical assistance in dying assisted suicide. And the laws were challenged by a woman, Miss um, Taylor, who had ALS, two family members of an individual who had traveled to Switzerland to receive medical assistance in dying, also a doctor who was willing to participate in physician-assisted dying, and the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association a legal advocacy organization that supports uh, civil liberties issues in, in the province. And this was not the first time that there had been a challenge to these provisions and to the ban on medical assistance in dying. There was a famous early case from the Supreme Court of Canada called Rodriguez. In that case, the majority upheld the constitutionality of the medical assistance in dying prohibition. However, there was a strongly worded dissent by then Justice McLaughlin, now Chief Justice McLaughlin, and there had been a sense amongst the legal community that the time might be ripe for another challenge. The plaintiffs in that case put together an impressive evidentiary record, and they argued in a sense that it was possible now to have safeguards that would enable medical assistance in dying to be legal without providing an undue risk to vulnerable populations. And, you know, really briefly, the argument against allowing medical assistance in dying to be illegal is that particularly vulnerable people, disabled people, and elderly people, are going to be pressured into making a decision that they might not otherwise want to make, that is, to end their life early. They wouldn't want to be a burden on their family or they wouldn't want to deplete the family's resources. The theory is that if medical assistance in dying is illegal, nobody has to feel pressure to take that option. But once it's available, then people will, will choose to use that service. 
um, despite the fact that they, they might not really want to, but they might feel the pressure to do so. And the concern is that these people who are potentially being pressured are uniquely vulnerable. There's also a concern that doctors are not infallible and a diagnosis that seems incurable could be wrongly made, could be an incorrect diagnosis, or furthermore, medical science could evolve such that what was once a death sentence no longer was. So that was sort of the, the argument. On the one side, the plaintiffs are saying that people are suffering who don't wish to be suffering. They say suicide is legal. and There's no law against committing suicide. It's only people who can't do it themselves for a medical reason who need this assistance. And furthermore, that people who wish to end their lives should be able to do it in the a safe and supervised and, and legal way that wouldn't require them to keep a secret from their family or potentially involve their family in criminal liability. But the other side says, as I, as I mentioned, we, we're concerned about abuse, we're concerned about error, that people are going to be misled. So it's a very difficult question. As I said, the plaintiffs assembled a vast record of evidence, and the trial judge found that an assisted suicide regime with safeguards can protect vulnerable people from abuse and error. And then the court found that despite the Rodriguez case, which was about 20 years old, these provisions of the criminal code did violate Section 7, the Section 7 rights of competent adults who are suffering intolerably as a result of grievous and irremediable medical conditions. And then furthermore concluded the infringement was not justified under Section 1 of the Charter. So this is surprising in a sense that this trial judge is bound by the Rodriguez case by stare decisis. And that's what the BC Court of Appeals says. They say, well, look, you know, despite what the trial judge found and despite the record, which no doubt will be very interesting to the Supreme Court of Canada, the trial judge was bound to follow the Rodriguez case. This was a violation of stare decisis. So the first issue for the Supreme Court of Canada is, was the trial judge entitled to revisit the Rodriguez case that had previously said these provisions were constitutional? And the Supreme Court of Canada says, yes, trial courts may reconsider settled rulings of higher courts, like Rodriguez, higher court, Supreme Court of Canada, where a new legal issue is raised or there is a change in circumstances or evidence that fundamentally shifts the parameters of the debate. Here, both conditions are met. There is a new angle to this legal challenge. And specifically what they're getting at is, look, the Rodriguez case was a really early charter case, and the Section 7 framework and the law around arbitrariness and gross disproportionality that has developed was not yet fleshed out. So the court says in this circumstance, where Section 7 has evolved in the way it's been interpreted and applied, the court was not necessarily, the trial court was not necessarily bound to follow the early Supreme Court of Canada analysis. And this is intuitively somewhat um, appealing of a result if you think, well, if the, the legal framework around a constitutional right was in its infancy and it was applied in a way that was later departed from, then why ought a law that may be challengeable and may be problematic under the current approach to interpretation 
be allowed to stand merely because it was almost challenged too early. The court is never going to get a chance, the theory is, to look at this under the proper framework you know, until it gets to the Supreme Court of Canada if these early decisions under a different conception of Section 7, a more limited conception of Section 7 that hasn't embraced the ideas of arbitrariness and gross disproportionality is allowed to govern. An interesting conclusion because the Supreme Court of Canada didn't really have to go this far because, of course, once the case got before them, they were free to depart from their own precedent. So what they were doing here is they were specifically inviting the trial court to reconsider Section 7 cases that were decided quite early on. This is not a uncontroversial part of the Carter decision, and it can be seen as an invitation to further charter challenges. And the court also said that the evidence had materially changed. The circumstances or evidence had changed so as to fundamentally shift the parameters of the debate. Here, the risk of abuse associated with assisted suicide had vastly different evidence than from Rodriguez. Because in Rodriguez, this was before other jurisdictions had legalized medical assistance in dying and had a broad array of experience in relation to medical assistance in dying. So having decided the trial judge didn't go too far in departing from the Rodriguez precedent, but in any event, now having the case before them properly with a full factual record, the court first considered the Section 7 question of do these provisions, the ban on this medical assistance in dying, engage the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And the court said, yes, indeed, all three. The life issue is engaged because the prohibition forces some individuals to take their own lives prematurely out of fear they will be incapable of doing so when the suffering becomes intolerable. This was a matter of evidence before the trial judge, and the trial judge accepted that. There's a liberty interest because people are denied the right to make decisions about their own bodily integrity and medical care. And furthermore, security of the person is engaged because people are left to endure intolerable suffering they might not otherwise choose to endure because of these medical conditions that are at the heart of their decision to seek medical assistance in dying. So yes, indeed, a life, a liberty, and a security of the person interest was found to be engaged. It's the first half of Section 7. Going into the second half, are these deprivations consistent with the principles of fundamental justice? And the court said no. While they are not arbitrary, they are overly broad. The object of these is to protect vulnerable people from being forced to commit suicide at a time of weakness. That's the state objective that the court found. So on an arbitrariness, you're asking, is there any connection between the state objective and the law? And this, the court says, no, you know, this is not insight. This is not a case where the state has chosen something that bears no connection to its object. This is not like insight where the object was to preserve health, but they are banning a practice. And in so doing, they're going to undermine health. Rather, the objective of protecting vulnerable persons is, at least in some cases, accomplished by this complete prohibition. However, the complete prohibition on medical assistance in dying, it catches people 
outside of the class of protected persons. Not vulnerable people, competent, not vulnerable people get caught in this absolute bar. So in some cases, the limitation is not connected to the objective. Therefore, the prohibition is overly broad. So just to come back, you have this idea where you have the three important principles of fundamental justice. You have the arbitrariness, no connection between the state objective and the state action, overly broad. In some cases, there's no connection between the state action and the objective, and gross disproportionality. The benefit the state is obtaining is grossly disproportionate to the burden it is imposing. In this case, you have an overbreadth argument succeeding. You're catching people who don't need protection. And the court then goes and says the court fails at the minimal impairment stage of a section one analysis. So I'm going to come back again to section one at the end because it, it ties these principles of fundamental justice, arbitrariness, overbreadth, and gross disproportionality up nicely to talk about section one at the end. I'm going to move on to the Bedford case. Quickly before I do, just a note on the remedy. As I mentioned earlier when speaking in the last lecture briefly about suspended declarations of invalidity and constitutional exemptions, in this case, the court granted a suspension of a declaration of invalidity for a year. Then there was this change in government. The new government asked for a longer suspension, and the court said, you can have four more months, but in this interim, people can apply on an individual basis for a constitutional exemption from the bar on medical assistance in dying. In response, there was an amendment to the criminal code, which now permits assisted suicide in cases of a grievous and irremediable condition, which is what the Supreme Court of Canada had spoken of in Carter, but added a requirement that death be reasonably foreseeable. So then another constitutional challenge went to this, and that's a Lamb versus Canada case, which ultimately ended with the government giving a, a new interpretation, which broadened what reasonably foreseeable meant. It didn't mean sort of immediate. That's beyond the scope of what I want to talk about today, but I want you to take away from this Carter case a few things. I want you to think about how life, liberty, and security of the person were all engaged, and about how here you have an example where it's not that there's no connection whatsoever between the law, between a ban on people having assistance and dying in, in suicide, and the state's goal of protecting these vulnerable people who might be exploited by being pressured into ending their lives when they didn't otherwise want to. It's not that there's no connection, but the problem was that you were capturing many people who weren't being pressured and, and sincerely wanted this for themselves. That's the overbreadth question. So the final case that we're going to come to is the Bedford case. And this is the case that I talked about during the discussion of the downtown Eastside sex worker standing case. And if you remember, I said that there was this other challenge to the prostitution laws in Canada. And I mentioned, I think in passing, the sort of odd feature where prostitution is not itself illegal, but rather it's things around prostitution, including living off the avails of prostitution, communicating in public for the purposes of prostitution, 
or to keep a body house, which is a, a fancy way of saying a brothel. And again, this is another case where there had been an earlier challenge to the prostitution laws, which had been unsuccessful. And this was another attempt to bring the issues before the court. So the first issue before the court, again, was whether the trial judge had been entitled to revisit the earlier decision, the prostitution reference from 1990. And the court said yes and no. The trial judge was right to rule on the question of whether the laws violate a security of the person under Section 7 of the Charter because the prostitution reference was based on physical liberty. So there's a different protected interest at stake. And furthermore, the principles of fundamental justice had developed significantly. So this is the arbitrariness and overbreadth and gross disproportionality ideas had developed in the last 20 years. So there was this shift in Section 7, the same shift that was recognized in Carter. And indeed, Carter came after Bedford, so it's a bit incongruous that I'm talking about the cases in this order. Bedford is really the important case on this question of this shift in the principles of fundamental justice. But the court said, you are not entitled to revisit the expression argument. There's also an argument that the prohibition on communication violated expression. And the court said, look, that was decided in the earlier case, and there hasn't been a significant shift in the law or evidence in this regard. So again, we get this idea that if you have a big shift in the law or a fundamental change in the evidence that shifts the parameters of the debate, then you can, as a trial judge, revisit these charter cases. And here's a good example of where you'll draw the line. Section 7 had evolved significantly. The expression provision, the expression protections under Section 2B had not changed in the same fundamental way. So the trial judge was okay to revisit the issue of Section 7, but should have deferred to the earlier case on Section 2B, the expression. Bit of a funny result. And it doesn't really matter for the purposes of the Supreme Court of Canada's decision because, of course, they were entitled to revisit everything. So the court then goes on to say, okay, well, let's look at these things. What The argument is that these laws take a legal profession. It's not illegal to engage in prostitution. It wasn't. And yet they make it really hard and dangerous to practice that profession safely. You prevent people from engaging in a risky but legal activity, from taking steps to protect themselves from risks. You can't live off the avails of prostitution, so people engaged in sex work can't hire security guards. You can't work in a body house or a brothel, so sex workers can't create a safe space. You can't engage in communication on the street, so you go to less visible and more dangerous places. This has the effect of imposing physical danger onto a legal occupation. Now, could sex work be criminalized? That wasn't before the court, but probably yes. The court probably would have allowed them to, the, the legislature to say prostitution is illegal and you can't do it. However, if you're not going to do that, if you're going to not say prostitution is legal, illegal, but you're going to take all these steps to make it dangerous, that's where the constitutional issue arises. So you have a deprivation of security of the person caused to the people engaged in sex work by 
these provisions that make it dangerous to engage in a legal profession. Then you have to question, is this consistent with the principles of fundamental justice? And they look again at arbitrariness, overbreadth, and gross disproportionality. Arbitrariness, no connection between the effect of depriving somebody of a life, liberty, or security interest and the object of the law. Overbreadth that goes too far, you're depriving somebody of a protected interest, in some cases for a reason unrelated to the purpose of the law, or grossly disproportionate. The state's benefit that it obtains from the law is so out of step with the burden placed on individuals and those protected interests that it can't stand. And the court goes through and says, the body house prohibition, the prohibition on a brothel, is grossly disproportionate. The state's goal is to prevent a public nuisance, but the harm to sex workers is to prevent them from working in a safe, fixed indoor location. This is grossly disproportionate to that objective. And again, within the framework of the state saying that the occupation of sex work is not in and of itself illegal. They go on, and what about the living off the avails, the idea you can't hire a bodyguard? And the court says, yeah, here the purpose is to prevent exploitation of sex workers, you know, prevents pimps from exploiting sex workers. But this extends also to people who could increase the safety and security of sex workers, drivers, managers, bodyguards, and anybody who would go in business with a sex worker, so accountant or receptionist. This is overly broad. You're trying to protect a group from exploitation, but you're ending up overshooting the mark and preventing them from engaging in a number of things that would help make their business safer. And then finally, what about the communication prohibition? And the court says, yeah, again, we're talking about preventing a nuisance, but the impact on the safety is that it prevents people from screening potential clients. And this would be grossly disproportionate. You're pushing people off the streets into less safe environments, into cars, into back alleys, as it were, places where people are going to be less likely to be seen and more likely to harm the sex workers. The court then went through a section one analysis and then decided the proper remedy would be a declaration of invalidity for one year, suspended, sorry, to suspend a declaration of invalidity for one year. And they said the regulation of prostitution is complex and delicate and it's up for parliament to decide on a new approach. And parliament amended the criminal code in 2014 in response to this. The new model, I'm not particularly familiar with, but I think it prohibits the purchasing of sexual services, which is sort of the Swedish model, I understand, and puts restrictions on advertising of sexual offenses. So it doesn't make the sale of sexual services illegal, but it makes the purchasing illegal. So it's the it's the Johns, if you were, if you will, who are engaging in an illegal act, not the sex workers. So what you want to take away from Bedford is this idea that the state taking a legal occupation and driving it into a dangerous condition can violate the security of the person. And then with the principles of fundamental justice, this is a good case to think of for gross disproportionality, an example of when the effect to the protected security of the person interest was so much greater than the goals that were at issue that the law couldn't stand. And thinking back on the 
PHS, Insight, Carter, Bedford cases, you can think of PHS as being a good case on arbitrariness. There's no connection between a state purpose of promoting health and safety served by closing down something that has the effect of protecting health and increasing safety. For overbreadth, you can think of Carter, the idea that, look, you're accomplishing your state goal in some way by stopping everyone from getting medical assistance and dying because those who would be vulnerable to exploitation are stopped. However, you're also stopping everybody who's not vulnerable to exploitation, and so you've overshot the mark. And then you can think, for gross disproportionality, Bedford, the idea that preventing a nuisance on the street versus the effect of causing people to face physical danger in engaging in a legal profession just is so out of proportion that it can't pass constitutional muster. And it's also got an example of overbreadth with the living off the avails prohibition being aimed at protecting sex workers from exploitation by pimps, but ending up preventing sex workers from hiring people who would increase their safety and security. So it's really important that you internalize what this what these three principles of fundamental justice get at. They are the most important and most regularly used principles of fundamental justice. You have in the Mamo Levine case sort of the formula for other principles of fundamental justice, and there are other principles of fundamental justice that are important. One of the earlier ones that still has some resonance is vagueness. It's the idea that a law must not be so vague such that it doesn't set out a delineate an area of risk. But I think that that has been less and less relied upon because the courts gave a significant amount of deference to the legislature. And often, instead of saying that a law was unconstitutionally vague, would instead interpret the law and give it some bounds, which would then allow it to be at least within the minimum standards of vagueness. So the important principles of fundamental justice to take away for this court, this course and for your practice are the arbitrariness, gross disproportionality, and overbreadth. It's probably better to think in this order, arbitrariness, overbreadth, gross disproportionality for the reason I'm going to get to next, which is this long-teased Section 1 tie-in. And I said the idea that Section 1 is going to never or very rarely be used to save a law that has been found to infringe Section 7. And I don't think it's ever been successfully used. For a long time, there was a general acceptance that you just didn't have to even get into Section 1 because laws couldn't be saved under Section 1 if it was a violation of Section 7. There's been some moving away from that position and courts have said, well, maybe there could be a law at some point, but I don't know of it ever actually happening. And the reason generally is that the interests that are protected through these principles of fundamental justice are akin to the interests that are raised under section one. And there's actually a really nice mapping between the Oaks test and these principles of fundamental justice. And I think you'll be able to see why you can't get through a section one analysis when you have a concern the law is arbitrary, 
overly broad or grossly disproportionate. Because if you remember, the Oaks framework has as its first step a pressing and substantial objective, but then it asks for a rational connection, minimal impairment, and a general proportionality. And of course, rational connection, is there a rational connection between this pressing and substantial objective and the legislation at issue? Well, that, that won't be satisfied if the law is arbitrary. If there's no connection between the state goal and the infringement of someone's rights, such that the law is arbitrary, you could never say there's a rational connection. It's two sides of the same coin. You're necessarily going to fail at section one. Now, overbreadth says there is some rational connection. There is some, some connection between the deprivation of someone's rights and the state's goal, but you're overshooting the mark and you're hitting all these people and taking away their protected rights in a way that bears no connection to the state's goal. Well, that's not minimally impairing then, is it? You see, it's, it's the same idea. Overbreadth is, by definition, a lack of a minimal impairment. And finally, the last stage of the Section 1 test, this general proportionality, well, similarly can't be met by a grossly disproportionate law. So because you're getting at the same ideas in a Section 7 analysis, as you're concerned with in a Section 1 justification framework, at least for these key principles of fundamental justice, arbitrariness, overbreadth, and gross disproportionality, you're not going to be able to save a law under Section 1. So I hope that's a, a nice way to tie in Section 1 and Section 7. Big picture what I want you to know about Section 7. I want you to know how you show a Section 7 analysis is triggered by showing a deprivation of a life, liberty, or security of the person interest. I want you to know the Mamo Levine approach to describing what are the principles of fundamental justice. That is, it must be a legal principle. There must be significant societal consensus that this principle is fundamental to the way the legal system ought to operate. And it must yield a manageable standard against which to measure deprivations of life, liberty, or security of the person. I want you to know about arbitrariness, overbreadth, and gross disproportionality as the key principles of fundamental justice. But know that under this Mamo Levine framework, other principles of fundamental justice can be discovered, and there are other ones out there. For example, that a law must not be so vague as to not delineate an area of risk. And then I want you to know this somewhat elegant alignment between the Oaks test and specifically the rational connection, minimal impairment, and general proportionality concerns of the Oaks test and the principles of fundamental justice of arbitrariness, overbreadth, and gross disproportionality. And the idea that if you can show a law is arbitrary, if you can show it's overly broad, if you can show it's grossly disproportionate, to get a Section 7 violation, that's necessarily going to preclude justification under Section 1. So with that on Section 7, the next and final component of this lecture will be about Section 15, Equality.